So this really deserves mentioning in the context of any later discussion about cannibalism during the Liberian civil wars, but we need to, I think we need to talk for a second about the spiritual dimension of political power in Liberia, because it is a country that of course, uh, as we kind of went through in the first chapter is, uh, intensely religious, um, both in terms of, uh, the Christian faith in Liberia that was brought over uh, from the United States, but also the minority Muslim population of the Mandingos um, up in the, the north of the country, um, but also the traditional religions of the tribes, of the indigenous tribes of Liberia, and the uh, organizational forms that those took, the chief among which were the Poro and the Sande societies. The Poro was for men, Sunday was for women, and um, they ran what were commonly called bush schools, which were sort of a uh, a rite of passage for young men and women uh, in order to sort of become adults. They would go out into the bush, and usually a zoo or a priest um, would train them in their social roles and basically it provided a very um essential kind of social social function for these tribal societies and over the course of the 20th century it sort of uh became a little more mainstream and after a while uh in some respects rose to be almost like an analog like an indigenous analog of the freemasons the, uh, that the America Liberians were. So by the 60s and 70s, uh, you had people like William Tolbert who would become a zoo or a high priest in the Poro society as a way to cement relations with the various tribes that uh, practiced Poro. But then in 1977, something very shocking and very scary happens. I'm going to read from a website called LiberiaPastAndPresent.org, which has uh, a nice little walkthrough of this. So, Maryland County, Liberia, 1977. President Tolbert was angry. At least he appeared to be. More than 10 persons had been missing in ritual killings in Maryland County, and his personal representative, the county superintendent, had not reported anything. Worse, he even had received a message that the superintendent, the highest public official in the county, had obstructed the work of policemen investigating these murders, which evidently were ritual murders since all victims' bodies had several parts missing when found. Subsequently, and at various occasions, President Tolbert made it very clear, I cannot tolerate this. He knew what had happened and still happened in the country. He knew that the ritual murders in Maryland County were not the only ones in the country. Reports had reached him that they occurred in various parts. In fact, all regions, from Maryland in the east to Cape Mountain in the west, but also in Lofa County in the northwest, as well as Nimba and Bong and Bassa, President Tolbert seemed determined that this should end, and therefore he declared publicly, anyone who kills deliberately, the law will kill that person. Between mid-July 1977 and mid-February 1979, it seemed as if an earthquake struck the country. People who seemed to be untouchable were accused, arrested, even convicted, and finally executed. This had never happened before in the Republic. 
The Tubman days were over, when people close to the president and like him from Maryland were set free after being found guilty by a lower court, but then set free by a Supreme Court, whose chief justice was also from Maryland County. President Tolbert undoubtedly was a clever man. Tubman had assured the services of a chief justice who, like him, hailed from Maryland. President Tolbert's chief justice, James A. Pierre, was a member of the Tolbert clan. His daughter, Carmenia, was President Tolbert's sister-in-law. She was the wife of one of his brothers, Stephen Tolbert, the powerful minister of finance and also a successful businessman. President Tolbert decided to act in the wave of Maryland ritualistic killings. Why did the preacher president do this? Was he sincere in combating the ritual practices, or was there something else behind his firm stand, anyone who kills deliberately, the law will kill that person? The following narrative of the notorious Maryland ritual killings case is more than the story of a ritual killing. It is also a story of political ambitions and fights. As previously reported, on July 16, 1977, President Tolbert ordered five days of prayers and fasting. Among those who prayed in one of Monrovia's numerous churches was Alan Yancey, son of a former vice president, church leader, former chief of police, country attorney, cousin of former President William Tubman, member of the House of Representatives for Maryland County, and recipient of many honorary national and foreign distinctions. Also on July 16th, President Tolbert fired James Daniel Anderson, superintendent of Maryland County, for failure of not reporting the disappearance of 14 people in his county since November 1976 and of not taking any action. Superintendent Anderson was no small fish. His father was the national chairman of the True Whig Party. A few days later, former Superintendent Anderson, Representative Yancey, and nine more people were arrested, accused of ritual murder. The editor of one of the most prominent national newspapers certainly did not hide his knowledge and feelings when he wrote, The recent dismissal of Maryland Superintendent James N. Anderson came as no surprise. For too long have the citizens of Maryland been living in fret. More than a hundred citizens have been murdered in that county from 1965 to 1977. That was not a small accusation towards the local authorities. More than a hundred people murdered. Without any doubt, the writer meant ritually killed. Was his allegation based on facts or fiction? The question is hard to answer. What is sure, however, is that ritual killings in Liberia were by no means sporadic, as the list of ritual murder cases cited in this essay clearly demonstrates. It even is very likely that the cases discovered and published were only the top of the iceberg and that many cases of ritual killing have never been and will never be revealed. For people in Harper and other parts of Maryland County, ritual killings were a daily threat in the 1970s. I can speak from my own experience. In the late 1970s, I lived in Harper City, even in one of its most dreaded parts, on the peninsula leading to the lighthouse and the harbor. In the beginning of the road leading to the harbor stood the Masonic Temple. A few hundred yards further to the left was the yellow-painted mansion of the late President Tubman. Local people used to tell me how frightened they were walking that road at night. Too many people had disappeared without traces, and those who had been found later all shared the same fate, mutilated before being killed. One of them was Simon Toe from Grand Cess Territory. Two days after Simon Toe had arrived in Harper, he disappeared. Several days thereafter, Simon Toe's body was found on the beach with his intestine out of his body and other parts missing. Another victim was a girl whose name was not disclosed. She disappeared in the Firestone area near Harper. When she was found dead, her ear, throat, and tongue were missing. Unfortunately, there were many more victims. Generally, the assassins got away with it. Not the murderers of Moses Tway, however. 
Before the kidnapping and killing of Moses Tway has been reconstructed on the basis of reports published by all Liberian daily and weekly newspapers, below, the kidnapping and killing of Moses Tway has been reconstructed on the basis of reports published by all Liberian daily and weekly newspapers. Spelling of names of the accused, however, is not always consistent, and the dates of their arrest vary. Be that as it may, the story reads as follows. The next section is about the ritualistic murder of Moses Tway. Between mid-July and early August 1977, former superintendent of Maryland County and also former chairman of the local True Whig Party of Maryland, James Daniel Anderson, and member of the House, Alan N. Yancey, and 10 others were arrested in connection with ritual killings in Maryland County. There were big demonstrations in Harper when the suspects were brought to prison. Many people shouted, at least we've got them. We can now breathe of relief. This picture shows how one of the accused... Alan Yancey was treated. He and Anderson were forced to walk butt naked in the streets of Harper, carrying two buckets loaded with sand. The 12 people arrested were James Daniel Anderson, superintendent of Maryland County, Alan Nathaniel Yancey, representative for Maryland County, House of Representatives, Francis Nyapen, assistant supervisor of schools, Philip B. Satan, senior inspector of the Ministry of Commerce, Maryland County, Joshua Brown, Chief Security Officer, Liberia Sugar Company, Taya Toby, Crew Governor, Tagbedi Wisse, Acting Chief of Grandsess Residence in Harper, Thomas Barclay, Cook of Allen Yancey, Juan Plu Boy, Domestic Servant for Francis Nyapen, Koti Wea, Chief Cook for the General Manager of the Firestone Company, Savala, Maryland County, Ray Terriano, Girlfriend of Francis Nyapan, and Putu Due. The suspects were charged particularly for the murder of Moses Tway, a fisherman and popular singer. Moses Tway, who originated from Grand Sess, was kidnapped on June 26, 1977, and his mutilated body was found a week later on July 3rd, near the Devil Rock in Harper. Missing from Tway's body were his eyes, ears, nose, armpits, testicles, and tongue, among other parts. Police investigation revealed that the arrested persons admitted of being involved in the murder of Moses Tway and that they divided certain parts of the body among themselves for, quote, juju purpose in order to obtain higher positions in the government. Accordingly, James Anderson wanted to be an ambassador, Alan Yancey wanted to take Senator William Shad Tubman's seat in the Senate, Philip Seaton was ambitious to replace Alan Yancey as member of the House, while Francis Nyapan's aim was to become county supervisor of schools. In his preliminary testimonies, assistant supervisor of schools Francis Nyapan, who held a master's degree in education from Howard University in the USA, confessed that when Tway was kidnapped on June 26th in Old Crew Town, he was kept in Nyapan's house until the night of July 3rd when he was taken in a government jeep to the backyard of Yancey's house where he was butchered by his, quote, boy, Juan Plu boy, Koti Wea, chief cook of the Firestone general manager, and Thomas Barclay, Alan Yancey's cook, in the presence of Yancey, Anderson, and others. When some parts of Tway were abstracted from his body while alive, Nyapan said that Alan Yancey took the penis, anus, and testicles. James Anderson took the throat, armpits, and piece of the intestine and the liver. Nyapan himself took a large piece of the intestine. Seton received one eye and human blood contained in a small beer bottle, while the remaining parts were divided among other members of the group. After the torture and killing of Moses Tway, 
Niapan and Joshua Brown, who considered Niapan as his godfather, transported the mutilated body in the same jeep to the end of Harper Airport and took it across Lake Shepard to the Devil Rock, where they dumped it on the beach. Niapan also revealed that Yancey introduced his cook as the Juju Man. One of the other accused, Philip Seaton, revealed that while the victim was kept in Niapan's house, Ray Terriano, Niapan's girlfriend, fed him. Besides, it was Terriano who, prior to the discovery of Moses Tway's mutilated body, had remarked to a group of women who were searching for the missing man that if they would be so lucky to find him, only his bones they might see. Her remarks sparked her arrest, followed by the incarceration of others. On August 8, 1977, a week after his arrest, Alan Yancey was expelled from the House of Representatives by unanimous vote. Prior to the vote, President Tolbert had sent a letter to the Speaker of the House, Richard A. Henrys, one of his strongest supporters in the Liberian political arena, pointing out that Yancey was criminally involved in the Moses Tway murder case and that he was convinced of the inconsistency of his continuing tenure as a member of the House and therefore suggested the House take appropriate action. President Tolbert's action may surprise and certainly can be considered inappropriate. Nobody is guilty before he or she is found guilty after a fair and impartial trial. However, one should also know that it was not the first time Alan Yancey was involved in a murder case. Also during the Tubman administration, he was accused of the crime of murder, and as one newspaper reported, there were many other trials held in Harper over the years involving him. We make special reference to the Robert Moulton case, in which he was arrested for the crime of murder, and his arrest and trial for the crime of murder involving the late Gabriel Diggs, commonly called Watteau, and other cases in which he was involved. Alan Yancey had been indicted and tried a few years earlier, also in Harper in 1967, but was never convicted, allegedly because of the protection of his cousin, President Tubman. Yancey was then, quote, saved by the Supreme Court, presided over by Chief Justice A. Dash Wilson, who also came from Maryland County, which reversed the judgment of the lower court. So then we get the first Harper trial. The trial of the Gang of Twelve started in Harper on September 12, 1977. A few days later, two of the defendants, Joshua Brown and Taya Toby, were set free. Later, they testified as state witnesses. During the trial, Francis Nyapan told the court that he initially confessed to the killing of Moses Tway at gunpoint and under cruel treatment from the Maryland County Police, who he said arrested and mishandled him. Quote, I was dragged and given electric shocks on the tender parts of my body and was made to cut grass with my fingers and later placed on ice when the agents put me on a drum of water with blocks of ice. Nyapan further alleged that he was arrested and charged with the killing of Moses Tway as a result of a traditional juju ordeal that had been ordered by the then-acting superintendent of Maryland County, Nathan Barnes. Other defendants also complained of being maltreated, humiliated, tortured, and said their earlier confessions were given and extorted under severe torture. Police officers testified that James Anderson had obstructed police investigation of the disappearance of Moses Tway. The superintendent had ordered the release of two of the accused who had been apprehended by the police as suspects. The two, Juan Blue Boy and Koti Wea, had been released on July 3rd, the day of the night Moses Tway was killed. Newspaper reporting of the trial was abundant, and each and every detail of the last days and last hours of Moses Tway were published. State witness Joshua Brown revealed in detail the gruesome ritualistic killing of the victim. Quote, when I got in the yard of Alan Nancy, I saw old Pa Barclay and Cody Wea, who both came to the Jeep, 
And when Niapan opened the jeep, Wamplu Boy and Barclay held Moses Tway by the hands and walked him to the lime tree in the backyard of Yancey. There Barclay and Wea spread a dark flexible material on the ground and sat Moses Tway on it. At this time a circle was made around Tway under the lime tree, and Cody Wea came out of the circle and stood over Moses Tway. Then Wamplu Boy, standing before Tway, remarked to him in the crew dialect, saying, You remember sometimes ago, you insulted me before the public, and I told you I was going to catch you. Now, this is my time. As soon as Boy finished, Cody Wea took an axe and hit Moses Tway behind his neck twice, and while on the ground, Cody Wea held him by the shoulder, pulled down Tway's short black pants, and then, then follows the, the gruesome details of the cutting of the body, which have intentionally been left out here because of their shocking content. Brown's and Toby's testimonies gave a full account of what happened. According to their testimonies and those of others, like the four Maryland County police officers, James Anderson and mastermind of the kidnapping and murder had given money for the kidnapping, $500, to Niapan and Seton, who in turn gave the money to Togbedi Wise, who had arranged the abduction. Putu Dwe, Togbedi Wise, Francis Niapan, Philip Seaton and Wamplu Boy kidnapped Moses Tway. Alan Yancey had organized the ritual killing, which was performed by Chief Bojo Kotiwea with the assistance of Wamplu Boy and Thomas Barclay, whereas Nyapan had divided the parts taken from Ray's body. Nyapan's girlfriend, Tariane, had cooked for the victim and fed him during his captivity. Anderson Yancey et al. denied any involvement in the murder of Moses Tway. The daughter of co-defendants, Ray Terriano and Francis Nyapan, Laureen Nyapan, testified on behalf of her father, and Beaufort Yancey testified for his father. Also, Miss Margaret Johnson testified for defendant Nyapan and said the accused was at home on July 3rd, the night in which Moses Tway was murdered, and that he never went out until the next day. Miss Esther Watkins, a witness for defendant Anderson, told the court and jury that she slept with James Anderson in the same bed on the night of July 3rd and that Anderson did not go anywhere that night. On October 26, 1977, the jury found all defendants guilty. All the defendants were sentenced to death by hanging, and all but one appealed to the Supreme Court. The second Harper trial, the eight defendants, started on May 8, 1978. This was the appeal trial. Before the end of the retrial, another defendant died, Cody Wea. Then on June 9th, the jury's verdict was announced, convicting the remaining seven defendants for the murder of Moses Tway. Alan Yancey, James Anderson, Francis Nyapon, Philip Seaton, Ray Terriano, Putu Dwe, and Thomas Barclay. The seven defendants were sentenced to death by hanging. The Chief Justice uh, announced this decision. It upheld the conviction by the Harper Court and affirmed the death sentence for the seven murderers, which left them only one option, which was to get a pardon from President Tolbert. At the end of December, the Harper convicts were flown to Monrovia for security reasons. The Harper prison where they were held was found to be not safe enough. The transfer of the prisoners may have resulted from a possible attempt on part of some relatives to have one of the convicted poisoned in order to prevent him to end on the gallows and thus save his family the shame, which would have resulted from this disgraceful end. The family concerned was a very, quote, reputable and respected one. It was President Tolbert who revealed in the newspapers that unconfirmed reports had reached him that the brother of one of the convicted murderers, Eddie Anderson, deputy director of the Budget Bureau, had approached the medical director of Firestone Hospital in Kavala, near Harper, asking him whether he had any drug that could be used to poison his brother if the president decided to sign the death warrant. 
President Tolbert also openly declared that true Whig Party National Chairman James Anderson Sr., father of the convicted former superintendent of Maryland County, had approached him in order to review the decision of the Supreme Court. However, he had refused to consider the request. Quote, I will never permit myself to be influenced in one way or another by sentiments. I will do my duty when it is time to do my duty in the fear of God in keeping with the oath of office of the president. Shortly thereafter, he signed seven death warrants, sparing the life of Tagbadi Wise. And then there was the hanging. The place was Harper City. The day was Friday, February 16, 1979, 5 in the morning. More than 15,000 people stood in front of the gallows, which had been constructed a few days earlier. The gallows were situated near the public cemetery, at about 900 yards from the prison compound, where the seven convicted murderers had spent their last night. When the bus with the seven arrived, the crowd became quiet. That absolute silence of a 15,000 crowd was unbelievable and was one of the most extraordinary experiences I have had during my 16-year stay in West Africa. I stood next to a white priest who commented on their death sentence, approving it. It was nearly 6 o'clock, and the sun started rising. The sheriff started the countdown a few minutes before 6 o'clock. At 6 o'clock sharp, he blew his whistle, and the hangman did his work. Within seconds, the seven had died. The crowd kept silent for at least another 10 minutes. Then the people started talking again, louder and louder, until it was back at its normal volume. People approached the gallows, staring at the dead. When you kill, the law will kill you, my neighbor said, and left. The last section here, after the hanging. This is, by the way, this hanging is about two months before the Rice Riots. There was drumming and dancing in the streets, after the public execution of the convicted ritual killers. The crowd was singing and shouting slogans. They thus expressed their sense of happiness and relief. In future, they would have no more fears when walking at night in the city and its outskirts. Finally, justice had been done. But was this popular feeling correct and justified? There exists another interpretation of what happened on February 16, 1979, and prior to that date. However, let it first be clearly stated that the guilt of the convicted murderers seems to be beyond any doubt. The evidence against them was clear and convincing, not in the least supported by the confessions of state witnesses. Moreover, reportedly, Alan Yancey personally admitted that he was guilty. A few days after his son had been executed, the national chairman of the True Whig Party, James N. Anderson, resigned on February 20th, 1979, embittered, quote, Due to the machinations of wicked and cruel men, my eldest son James Daniel was hanged for a crime he did not commit, was what he wrote in the letter, tendering his resignation. Reportedly, he was also revengeful. His appeals for clemency for his son had found a deaf ear with President Tolbert and within the True Whig Party. In the weeks prior to the hanging, he had been very outspoken about his feeling of revenge in case Tolbert would not review his position. But President Tolbert persisted, and under the cloak of judicial independence, he refused to intervene, which sharply contradicts his interference when he wrote to the national legislature and asked for appropriate action against Representative Alan Yancey. In reality, however, it is very likely that the trial of the Maryland murderers and their conviction and subsequent execution was influenced by a power struggle within the Americo-Liberian ruling class. Not more than 30 families had always decided the country's fortunes and misfortunes, although they never ruled simultaneously. During the Tubman era, members of the Tubman, Padmore, Barnes, Brewer, Grimes, Sherman, Weeks, Anderson, and Yancey families climbed high on the political ladder. After Vice President William Tolbert succeeded Tubman in 1971, members of the Tolbert clan replaced them. 
Tolbert, Hoff, David, McLean, Holder, and Pierre families. Both Tubman and Tolbert used Liberians of tribal descent to broaden their political base and to compensate for the loss of support from some Americo-Liberian families by giving them high positions in the government or even cabinet posts. Within the true Whig party, the fight for power and public positions in combination with different opposing views on societal issues and development politics separated the two camps, although no clear line of demarcation existed due to the numerous intermarriages and other individual personal relations. For example, President Tolbert's daughter, Wokey, is married to Shad Tubman, the eldest son of President William Tubman, whereas a deceased daughter of Tolbert had been married to a Yancey. Liberian politics prior to the 1980 coup had very much been characterized by this mixture of relations. Against this backdrop, it is inevitable to pose the question, was President Tolbert sincere in his fight against ritual killings and other serious crimes? How sincere was he? It is difficult to answer this question without hesitation, be it with a straightforward no or a convinced yes. President Tolbert, who certainly had been close to a number of the ritualistic murders, which occurred during the administration of his predecessor, started his presidency in a flashy way, quickly introducing a number of reforms and changes. This earned him the nickname Speedy, but also brought him in conflict with the more conservative wing of the ruling political party, the true Whig party. It was not accidental that he took a firm stand once he was firmly seated in the political arena. When he took over the reins of government, Tolbert first finished Tubman's truncated term of office, but then continued the following four years on the basis of Tubman's victory in the 1971 presidential elections. In 1975, Tolbert had been elected in his own right, and his eight-year presidential term had started in January 1976. He may have been determined to introduce some changes which were long overdue in the areas of foreign relations, foreign investments, relations between the Americo-Liberian political class and the tribal masses, his fight against poverty, disease, and ignorance, etc. As the nation's president, he held the Constitution in one hand, but as a religious leader, he held the Bible in the other hand. His apparent sincerity in desiring political reforms and fighting lawlessness, however, is surrounded by a number of intriguing questions. Both before and after the arrest of Anderson, Yancey, et al., there have been numerous cases of ritual killings. Liberian press always very openly reported on dead bodies found with several parts missing, the most common expression to refer to ritual and cannibalistic practices. Arrests made in connection with these murders were pretty rare, whereas public trials, convictions, and public execution of the suspects found guilty were never reported, at least based on the same local newspapers. Were there cover-ups, like the case in Grand Cape Mount County, or were two mighty people involved whose loss of support Tolbert could not afford? Or had relatives been involved? It should not be forgotten that the Tolbert clan was one of the biggest in the country. Furthermore, President Tolbert had signed several death warrants since November 1971 when he signed the first one, sending a Nigerian science professor, Justin Obi, to the gallows. Subsequently, eight other convicted murderers had been hanged, among whom his cousin William Tolbert, who had killed his wife. The latest two executed murderers were Bor Borbor Brown and Kakula Vagbor in 1978, who died from capital punishment after much attention. The Harper hanging was the fifth in the series since November 1971. Altogether, and including the Harper Seven, 16 convicted murderers had been hanged since 1971. Whatever one may think of capital punishment, 16 executions compares, relatively speaking, favorable with the several hundreds of convicted murderers in Liberian prisons. 
In fact, the capital punishment in Liberia was rarely executed, so the question emerges, why then in the case of the Harper 7? Was it because of his feelings of justice, or did President Tolbert pursue this case because he wanted to reduce the power of some influential Maryland families, in particular those who had been close to former President Tubman? We may never know the answer for sure. The following year, President Tolbert was brutally murdered in the executive mansion. In general, he shunned the mansion, reportedly because of his fear of the, quote, bad spirits, which, according to popular rumors, haunted the presidential palace and which were linked to ritual ceremonies which allegedly had taken place in it during the Tubman years. President Tolbert's death started the decline of America-Liberian supremacy, but it did not stop ritualistic killings in the country. Already a few months after the Harper hanging, the Sunday Express headed, Harper again? Several arrested for alleged kidnapping. What had happened? A student of the William V.S. Tubman College of Technology in Harper, who was returning home at night, was offered a lift by a pickup truck driven by some unidentified men. While en route, the student was attacked, but he was saved after a woman who was nearby, observing what happened, yelled, and the alleged perpetrators of the act disappeared. When the student was found, he was naked and tied with ropes. Later, the suspects were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping. In July of the same year, a ritual murder case in Sino County again shocked the nation. The hanging of the ritual murders in Maryland County did not deter a group of people in Greenville, capital of Sino County, to commit the same crime only a few months after the public executions in Harper. Again, some big names were involved, and eventually several high-ranking public officials were arrested and put on trial. The following year, in August 1980, I turned on the radio and heard a BBC report on a recurrence of ritual killings in Maryland County, Liberia. Among those arrested was the mayor of the county's capital, Harper. There may have been more, maybe many more, in the years which followed. We will never know how many. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad. Some people would say